events that have come through our life, things that have been life-changing. Um, and again, the events, there is, they're definitely there. But they're as varied as, you know, wide and varied as the people who are here. Um, you know, and, and for some of us, uh, it was meeting our spouse. I very clearly remember the first time that I met Ginny, and I even remember some of the details about it, of that, that first, very first time that I met her and that I saw her. Um, you know, and, and it's just very clear to me. And, you know, maybe it was the birth of your, you know, of your child. You were impacted by the responsibility of being a parent. I remember the birth of all of our children. I remember when Marcy was born, though, I, I realized life had changed, you know, had made a definite change. It, it was not going to be the same, you know. There was no question about it. Uh, it was, it was just, you know, one of those those moments. Uh, for some, it's a health issue, or an accident that has come along and changed things. I remember when Walt Roos had his stroke, and he realized he that you know there were some things and some habits he had that that contributed to you know to that happening and he immediately made changes you know he immediately uh, started doing some things differently uh, you know it was a life changing uh, time and event for him and many of us can remember uh, when we realized that we had to be serious in our relationship with Jesus that it had to change from just knowing about Jesus to knowing him uh, you know, and we moved from being a casual consenter, you know, somebody who just consented with uh, things. Yeah, 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 I know. I, yeah, yeah, I know. He, you know, he died. You know, I, I understand that. And, you know, that casual consenter to one who actually lives each day in and from our relationship with God. One who, you know, who knows that it matters how we live and knowing that that makes a difference and it matters, you know, what goes on in our life. Uh, today we're going to look at the encounter of, that Jacob had with God that changed his life forever. Let's pray before we turn to that passage. Father, thank you for who you are and the way you work in our lives. When I think of all the individuals here, you touched us in different ways. Some certainly may be similar. Uh, some of them are drastically different. But, Father, for all of it, the common thing there, you showed us our need for you. You showed us what it, what life was like without you. You showed us the possibilities of life with you, Father. And, and you loved us so much that you made sure we came to know you. And there have been things in our life since then that have continued to change us, continued to help us see you. We can all remember and recall things to our mind. Those times in which you tapped us on the shoulder and you very lovingly again showed us that we need to live for you. Teach us this morning from your word, from your truth, that we may again uh, know the reality of your word and your truth in such a powerful way that we will know that we've been changed by your grace and for your glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 32. If you want to turn there, it's on page 29 in the Pew Bible or wherever else it is on yours. It will be, um, again, I'm working from the Holman Christian Standard. If that's confusing to you to hear something different than what you read, you might want to turn there in the Bible. Uh, that's in the Pew Rack there, page 29. We looked at the first part of this last week. We're going to look at the latter part of it, dropping all the way down to verse 22 if you will, in the Holman Christian Standard, that's kind of a middle of a paragraph. 
For some other translations, it's the beginning of a paragraph, but verse 22. Uh, now, really, let, let me back you up just a moment, because the encounter that changed Jacob's life forever really started a, just a little earlier in this chapter. Look at verse 9. We looked at verses 9 through 12 last week. We're not going to do much more than just look at them again to help us set the context here. In verses 9 through 12 here, these, uh, th- this is Jacob's prayer. It says, verse 9, it says, Then Jacob said, God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, the Lord who said to me, Go back to your land and to your family and I will cause you to prosper. I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you have shown your servant. Indeed, I crossed over this Jordan with my staff and now I have become two camps. Please rescue me from the hand of my brother Esau for I am afraid of him. Otherwise he may come and attack me, the mothers and their children. You have said, I will cause you to prosper, and I will make your offspring like the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted. So this is Jacob's prayer. And he prayed, you know, and like many of us, he he probably had some ideas of how he wanted this prayer answered. We do that, don't we? I mean, we pray, but we have in our mind an idea or two or ten of how we want this prayer answered. You know, that this is what we want to happen. This is how we want things to unfold. This is how we want things to flow out. Uh, you know, now you'll notice here in verse 10, he does admit that he has some faults. Uh, you know, recognizes his unworthiness to have God act on his behalf. He mentions that there recorded for us in verse 10. Still he prays, rescue me. Rescue me. Get me out of this. Change the situation. Change what's happening here. And then Jacob got the answer he didn't expect. You see, he expected this situation to change, and God had something else in mind, as many of you are always already aware of. God wasn't going to change the situation. God was going to change Jacob. And this answer begins to unfold. How he didn't, you know, not only the answer he didn't expect, but in a manner he didn't expect. Those are the verses we're looking at today. Drop down to verse 22. It says, During the night Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two female slaves, and his eleven sons and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. And he took them and sent them across the stream along with all of his possessions. And now, now, beginning with verse 24, you're going to see the answer to his prayer beginning to unfold. Verse 24, Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. When the man saw that he could not defeat him, he struck Jacob's hip socket as they wrestled and dislocated his hip. Then he said to Jacob, let me go for it is daybreak. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. What is your name? The man asked. Jacob, he replied. Your name will no longer be Jacob, he said. It will be Israel, because you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he answered, why do you ask me my name? And he blessed him there. Then Jacob named the place Peniel, for he had seen God face to face. He said, I have been, and I have been delivered. The sun shone on him as he passed Peniel, limping because of his hip. That is why to this day the Israelites don't eat the thigh muscle that is at the hip socket because he struck Jacob's hip socket at the thigh muscle. I am not going to comment at all on verse 32. Uh, Just a thought for you there. Uh, 
Now, Jacob gets up. We're, we're told here, Jacob got up during the night. Now, many of us are, you know, get up during the night. You know, but he got up during the night and he, he, does, he separates himself here. You'll notice he separates himself here from everything and everyone that came with him on this journey. He was journeying away from Haran and uh, where Laban lived and set up that, that memorial so as a testimony that God would keep them apart, not that he would, you know, keep them in his good graces while they were apart, but he, he, he did it so that they would keep them apart so they would never have to see each other again. And so he, he left Haran and where Laban was, and then he's journeying here toward Canaan where Esau lived, you know, that out of the frying pan into the fire type of situation that he has going on here. Now, we're not given the reason why he felt this needed to be done. We're not told at all. We're just told the fact that he did it. We don't know why he felt it had to be done right then. Uh, he obviously thought it was important to do it sooner rather than later. Uh, so this is what he did. And then Jacob's prayer begins to be answered. Now, we're simply given a statement that while Jacob tried to be alone on that other side of the river, he in fact had a visitor, and the visitor wrestled with Jacob all night. Now we find this very strange. You, you, we do. You know, there, there's a, a, a story that comes to mind. Uh, Jess, Jess, my daughter-in-law, has a, a brother named Jared. Some of you know Jared. He came to church here for a while when he was, he lived in Fort Wayne for about six months. So some of you know Jared. Well, Jared is a free and independent spirited guy. He went over to Europe and backpacked around Europe and, you know, hitchhiked his way around Europe and used their Europass and all these other things for a long time, a few months, I think. I don't really remember how long. <laughs> he would stay in hostels and things, you know, that he, he would connect with people. Um, he connected with this guy when he was in, in Italy. Um, and the guy said he could stay with... You're going to think I'm making this up, but I'm not. You can't make stuff up like this. Uh, the guy said Jared could stay with him if he would wrestle him. <laughs> we thought it was a joke. Andy looked it up on the internet. Our son-in-law, Andy, looked it up on the internet. And sure enough, there's this guy referred to as the, as the menace of Venice. And, and uh, this, is, this is, you know, what he did. So Jared had to wrestle this guy so he could spend a night with him. Well, here Jacob is wrestling this guy, and we find it very strange, just like I find it very strange that Jared would even agree to do that with this guy. Uh, but here Jacob's wrestling with this guy, and we, we find it strange. Now, some say, well, it was a dream. It wasn't a dream because Jacob had a very real physical engagement with this man that left him with a physical injury <clears throat> you know and so he had you know that this was a very real thing that was help that was happening now jacob felt this man was from god many today feel that this is the pre-incarnate jesus i think the best way to interpret scripture is with scripture uh, we're given a bit of insight in hosea chapter 12 it says this jacob struggled with the angel and prevailed. Uh, he wept and sought his favor. He found him at Bethel 
and there he spoke with them. Uh, it's referred to as an angel here. Now, you'll see the Holman Christian Standard capitalize that, and they capitalize that again because they see this as, as the pre-incarnate Christ. Uh, whether it is or not um, uh, is, is really not as important of, of, as the reality of what's going on here. We have several other places in Scripture where angels uh, do a mission representing God and even where they are referred to with the Elohim phrase. Uh, that was a, a general a general word for God, which is why he called this place Peniel, El, being that connection with God, Bethel, the house of God. On his way out, he had that vision of the of the staircase of the ladder, and he named that Bethel, the house of God. Here, he's coming back into the land, and as they as it says, you know, that he was at the ford of the Jabbok. That was uh, the, the place where it was easy for them to cross. Their, their cultures at that time believed the God of that particular country uh, hung out there to guard the ford of the river, the place where it was easy for people to cross, and that is where someone would be confronted. Well, sure enough, here he is at the ford of the Jebek, and he is confronted by this man that he, again, very clearly uh, relates to and, and connects with God. Now, whether it was an angel or the pre-incarnate Jesus, Jacob saw this all as being orchestrated by God, and that's the point we need to grasp here. This was orchestrated and done by God. Jacob obviously realized this was no ordinary man. He was learning something that we need to learn, and that's that blessings come from God, not from our own efforts. Jacob was here, separated himself from all of that stuff he had, all of that stuff that he, that, you know, that he built up, the family as well as his possessions that he built up while he was with Laban. He separated himself from that. That was a cross on the other side of, of the Jabbok, and here he comes back, and, and, you know, he's learning here that the blessings that we have, they come from God, not from our own efforts. Now, we certainly have a role to play. You need to remember that. You need to understand that. We do have a role to play. You know, God wants our involvement, you know, and that's mainly that of obedience to God. That's what Jacob's learning here. That's what he's learning here. He's learning about obedience to God. Now, God called Jacob back to Canaan, but there was an issue that Jacob had to address, and God intervenes here to get this thing cleared up. Jacob didn't expect to have to deal with this. This wasn't something he expected at all. But there was, you know, you have several things going on. You have Jacob's lack of commitment to God. Remember, he was holding God at arm's length, God of my father. Now, it's just before he, it's when he prayed that prayer where he connects himself to it. And he says, God of my father, Abraham, God of my father, Isaac. And then this is the new part of his prayer. And the God who also spoke to me. And he's beginning to make this connection here, you know, but he was holding God at arm's length. And he also have Jacob's deceptive character. But these faults we see in Jacob that seem so obvious to us, they, you know, they seem to flow really from Jacob's self-sufficiency. You see that he wanted this, you know, he wanted these things, but he wanted them his way. He wanted to be in control. He wanted to make the choices of how he lived he wanted to be the one that, that set the agenda for how he lived and what he did. And that's, and that was what God was, seems to be dealing with him here. 
You know, dealing with this whole idea of self-sufficiency and the one of being in control and making the choices of how we live. We just talked about communion, and communion is that declaration of dependence upon God for how we live. And this is what's going on here. Self-sufficiency is always, it is always, you know, going to keep you from a serious relationship with God. Self-sufficiency is always going to do that. It is going to keep you from a serious relationship with God because what we do, you see, what we do with self-sufficiency is is we take control and we shove God into the back seat and say, I can handle this. I can handle this. You just ride along. I can handle this. And we think we're the ones setting the direction and we're the ones doing things. One of the, one of the things of having a relationship with God, one of the things that that means is that God is the one in the driver's seat doing our living. That's what it means that as we are living, God is the one in the driver's seat, not us. That's part of what, what having a relationship to Christ means. It means I relinquish control of my life to you, Lord. I am relinquishing control of my life to you and you are the one who is setting the pace. You are the one who is setting the direction. Now, we need to bring some clarity to verse 25 for you here. Verse 25 says, the man saw that he could not defeat him. Some of the translations say that he could not prevail against him. Some say that he could not overpower him. Now, there's where we have a little bit of, a little, little bit of trouble. Now, very clearly, very clearly, the man could defeat Jacob physically. Because notice what it says. He, he debilitated Jacob with just a touch. With just a touch. He physically defeated Jacob. So, so it, it, what this, this verse here isn't telling us is that he didn't have the physical power to do it. So then the, 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 the difficulty, the, the struggle there must have been in that spiritual area. God is not going to force you to believe in him. He could. But he doesn't. That's, that's not how he operates. What you have going on here is that, that, that difficulty in the spiritual area here that Jacob would not yield his spirit. He would not open up his life to God until something happened here. You see, the man was going to leave without blessing Jacob. Jacob was used to calling on the God of his fathers and the God, you know, that, that he would come and that he would do something for him because why? Because Jacob wanted things to go a certain way. Jacob wanted things in a certain order. Jacob wanted to be in control. And he's used to that unfolding. And here it is and it's coming along and he senses that this guy's going to leave, but that, but he has no sense that God, he has no sense that God is blessing him. And this man is going to leave without offering any, any blessing, without offering any assurance of God's help here. You know, up to this point, he viewed that relationship with God in terms of his own personal benefits, what was in it for him. And when he saw what was in it for him, then that's how he operated. God wanted Jacob to lay aside his self-sufficiency. God wanted him to surrender his life to God. Many people today accept Christ and Christianity as as, as a benefit to be enjoyed rather than as a commitment to their life. You see, Jacob was looking before this. Jacob was looking at God simply as a benefit to be enjoyed. And when it worked in his favor, then it was going to be okay. Otherwise, he was just on his own. You know, don't bother me, God. I'm busy now. And here, you know, we we have people who still do that, and we see we see people who want it, who look at Christianity simply as a benefit to be enjoyed. But that's not what it is. It's a commitment of our life. 
Now, for you, it may not be self-sufficiency that's getting in the way of the full commitment for you. Maybe it's pride. Those two, again, are closer related. Maybe it's selfishness. Maybe it's a need for approval. Here, the thing is, whatever it is, whatever takes your attention and your dependence off of God and onto something else, that is what God wants to deal with with you. Whatever it is that is taking your attention off of God and putting it onto something else, you know, to go through life with, with, with any of these things, you know, anything that takes your attention off of God, to go through life with that, that is counterproductive to faith, that works against our faith. Faith is that relationship to God, that dependence upon Him, and that relationship of dependence with Him. And, and here, anything that works against, anything that comes in and works against that, it, it's detrimental to you. Now, it became obvious to Jacob that he was in the hands of one that it was useless to continue to struggle against. And the confrontation lasted, it says here, until daybreak. I believe that was intentional. It was an intentionally long and protracted battle, so Jacob would never forget this encounter. Jacob wouldn't forget this thing. I found it very interesting here, darkness. Darkness is where Jacob was until this encounter, until this encounter with God brought him into light. And as the light's coming, he's coming into a relationship with God. Notice what God does. God draws attention to Jacob's name. What's your name, he says. <clears throat> and Jacob has to admit it. To them, names meant a lot more than they do for us. You know, they, uh, Andy and Chelsea are probably going to be blessed with their, their you know, their next child here tuesday at the latest apparently you know but uh, and they probably have some names picked out you know and andy's names have you know been something he named his first daughter after the street he grew up on and no 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 they you know but you know we they, we we have some connections to names sometimes you know we have you know Pete Switzer the third, because Pete Switzer the second is there, you know, and there's a Pete Switzer the first. And we have some of those that have connections, but you know, other other ones don't. You know I was named you know I was named Patrick? I don't either. Uh, apparently my parents just kind of like that name and ran. By the time you get to the fifth one, you know, you, your first four choices are gone. So that's what I was, that's what I got. You know, and, uh, you know, we, the, the names don't mean as much to us as they did to them. But to them, you, you recall when Jacob was born, why was he named Jacob? Because he was grasping the heel, which was a picture of a deceiver, somebody who trips somebody else up. And so when he's saying to Jacob, what's your name? What he's saying is, tell me. Tell me about your personality. Tell me who you are. Tell me what you are. And he has to admit, I'm Jacob. What he has to admit is, I'm the deceiver. I'm one who grasps the heel. I am that deceiver. And he has to admit that. And, and that he draws attention to that. You know, he, he is highlighting the transition here from the deceiver to Israel, one who struggled with God and man and won and prevailed. You know, he has, it's, it's that encounter with God. Jacob's name change here would remind him of this long struggle to avoid God and then his encounter with God. You see, Jacob's struggle here with God and with man, they were a result of his own nature and his own resistance against that total commitment to God. 
Jacob offering his name here and being renamed by the man, it's, that's representing, that's the, that's the indication that God, you know, that God is the one that Jacob is yielding to. And he's yielding to this relationship with God. This was not the answer Jacob expected when he said, Lord, save me because I'm afraid of my brother. The name change signifies a character change. Jacob the deceiver was not going to be the one who entered the promised land. But Israel, a man changed by an encounter with the power of God, was going to be the one entering the land. You see, we have to lose our life if we're to gain it. This is what, this is what Jesus told us. He said, for whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me will save it. What Jacob was doing is he was holding on to his life and he was holding on to control of his life. And God says, if you want to hold on to control of your life, you know, you're going to be the loser. But if you really want to gain life, you're going to lose your life. You're going to turn the control of that life over to me. You're going to give your life to me. And then you are going to have real life. You see, Jacob's persistence brought him success in the dealings with man, and now it brought him success into a relationship with God, not because God gave in to Jacob, but because Jacob now surrendered to God. Jacob surrendered his life to God. Jacob was changed by his encounter with God. You see, that's what we need to grasp, is God's people are changed by their encounter with God. We are changed. We are not the same after we surrender to God. If there is no change, there probably is no relationship to God. If there's no change. I want you to hear from three of our men this morning. You guys, come on up. I, I, I talked to three of our men, you know, John Golicky and Andrew Klein and, and David Ulrey, and I asked them to share with you about their encounter with God. You have, you have, uh, you, you know, you have that they really came in different points of their life. We're going to have John start because in, in one sense, you know, he had that encounter, um, made that decision a little bit earlier than, than Andrew. And then we'll have the old guy who did it last bring it up, bring up the end. So now we'll need this center mic on. For those of you who don't know me, I am John, but most of you know who I am. Uh, you might not know a lot about me, but uh, my testimony um, started in a church. I grew up in a Catholic church. I was baptized as a baby. Um, and in the Catholic church, if you guys aren't familiar with that, uh, you're baptized as a baby. You, are, you go through catechism, which is a, a class um, that it's a Bible class, you know, kind of like Sunday school, except for in the Catholic church, Sunday school stops when you uh, get out of eighth grade. So there's no, there's no Sunday school there. But you go through catechism, and then your first communion happens after second grade. Um, so you get all dressed up, and you have your first communion. And then you go through, and you're confirmed uh, when you're an eighth grader, and that's when you receive the Holy Spirit, just so you know. Um, but it's kind of neat, the timing of Pat asking me to do this, too, because in second grade, I had my first communion, um, which I didn't know what that meant. I didn't, it didn't really register me with what was going on. I knew a lot about God. I learned a lot about God. Uh, it didn't matter to me growing up. Um, I, I went, and, and I, you know, I just went to church, and that's what I did. Um, it's kind of neat because there were two individuals today who had their first communion, which 
when we have communion here, it's because you believe and then you have communions. My, my son Levi had his first communion today because this week he happened to uh, ask Jesus to be his savior. And there's somebody over here that I'm not supposed to mention that had their first communion, and he's not even looking at me right now. So, um, But it's just kind of neat. So I, I wanted to let you guys know that I, I was excited that when Pat asked me to do this, I get to announce to you guys, too, that uh, there were some more first communions today. Anyway. Um, <laughs> so... Yeah, so that was awesome. It was, it was a good week. Um, God is good. And all the time. Okay, so I grew up in the Catholic Church. Um, uh, you know, got confirmed when I was in eighth grade, which when you do that, you get a sponsor. So my Uncle Bill was my sponsor. And you pick a saint that you uh, that you study. And my, my saint was James, and I picked that because that's my other uncle's name, and he lives in Ohio. And anyway, it didn't really matter to me. Um, I knew a lot about God. So I got into high school. Um, started, I ran uh, track and cross country. I started in 10th grade. I didn't start in 9th grade because Phil Ambergy, as some of you know, he started recruiting me to try to run. Um, his freshman year, he started recruiting me. And he ended up getting me to come to youth group, um, kind of for the wrong reasons. I came to, uh, to play sports because he pitched that to me. Like, oh, we got sports. And then there was a girl who liked me. Um, and I wanted to find out who it was, and it wasn't my wife. Um, but there's a there's a, a CDYC speaker. Uh, he he used to be with Kingdom Building Ministries. His name's John Vermilia, and uh, he talks about uh, the domino effect. So like when you come to Christ, you have dominoes in your life. And I was kind of just going to point out to you the dominoes in my life. So I mean, me growing up in the Catholic Church was a domino because I learned a lot about God. Uh, me coming to youth group was kind of a domino because. I remember when I got into youth group, Kent, he was, he was pretty surprised at how much I knew about the Bible and how much I knew about these things. Um, but my questions to him were kind of antagonistic questions. And I, uh, I, I always said that I was a thorn in Kent's side when I was in youth group. He would say, no, no, no. But Kent's, Kent's humble. I just know that there was many conversations that he had at home probably with, man, really? He brought that question and, you know, uh, crazy theological deep questions that I was trying to corner him in maybe. I don't know. But, uh, you know, I was trying to use my knowledge of scripture and, and whatever. But I, again, I didn't really care. I knew a lot about him, but I didn't care. Um, so I, I was, I, back up a little bit. I was trying to, I forgot a domino. Uh, when I was in seventh grade, I had a teacher, Mr. Cashin, and you had Cashin. Um, he had a program at Northwood Middle School, which is where Klein is a prin- or principal, teacher. He must be a principal. Um, anyhow, he had a, a program called the Dead Prophet Society. And they met after school and stuff. I never was able to go because I, I was involved in sports and you had to stay after school and be able to get home and all that. But he gave me a Bible. Um, he gave me my first Bible and in the front of it, uh, he had a couple passages. One of them was the Timothy passage about not, you know, don't worry about your, how young you are. You know, let God work through you no matter how young you are. Um, can't can tell you what verse that is. Uh, anyway, um, so, so, uh, Mr. Cashin was kind of a domino in my life, and he's still, I still keep up with him. I still keep in contact with him. Uh, he's an amazing man. Anyway, he, got, he kind of got fired from a few different school, uh, school districts for being too Christian. So that's, that's the type of influence he had on people um, was, was that. So I'm in youth group, and uh, Kent, Kent was a, an amazing teacher. Um, despite my questions, he, he answered them uh, very well, and he taught me well. Went to CDYC uh, with uh, Julie and my wife and Klein and Scott and Pete and 
uh, Phil, a bunch of people that you know, and we, we kind of all still kind of uh, hung together. Uh, went to CDYC between my junior and senior year. Um, a man by the name of Adrian Dupree was there, and I don't know what he said, but he preached a message of salvation and repentance, and he ended up having, he had probably 40 sticks sticking out of his pants. Um, he's got a, a message called Sticks and Bricks, and we walk in front of God sometimes, and we look ridiculous, and he had all these sticks sticking out, talking about our sins and, and the way that we try to, uh, to build things and the way that we try to build our lives up. Anyway, he, he preached a message of you know salvation and repentance, and the Holy Spirit hit me that night, and I, I accepted the Lord that night. Um, and it was just kind of it's just kind of a snowball from there that um, that those questions that I was asking Kent, I wasn't asking them to try to uh, catch him in something. I started asking those questions to try to find out because um, some verses that I, I I give the kids some homework sometimes during the week during the summer break, and a couple of the verses this week that I gave to them was Ephesians five ten, which Ephesians five ten I can't remember the other reference, but it, they say. Um, find out what pleases the Lord and make it our goal to please the Lord. And that was what I was doing then at that point. Um, was I was trying to please the Lord. I was trying to get to that point because I had that encounter, you know, as Pat was talking about. I finally had that encounter and I finally cared about what, what, um, what I had known and what I didn't know and all that. But, um, and then, uh, ended up being, becoming a youth sponsor and, uh, helped with the youth group for a long time. Then Pete and I ended up, taking over the youth group, and then um, I got busy enough and had enough kids at home and ended up starting coaching that I stepped away from the youth group. But um, that's where God has brought me. Um, so now you know a little bit more about me and, and my relationship with him and how that started. So. Thank you, John. Um, a, a lot of what John said resonates with me because um, uh, I remember Adrian Dupree, the guy with the sticks out of his pants, and uh, I remember um, also uh, giving my life over to Christ at that moment, but uh, let me start back at the beginning. Uh, 1991, um, it was the first time I came to Kids Club. Uh, next door neighbor, Neil Miller, uh, invited me down uh, for Kids Club. Um, it was a great time, I remember that, um, but I didn't stay for the service afterwards, and, and it, it was many years that, that I came just for... Uh, kids club and um, sometimes you know different adults I, I remember Cheryl Ewers uh, inviting me to stay for the service and uh, among others uh, and eventually I did um, around 1994 or 95 um, I was watching the 700 club uh, at home just by myself and I remember at the time uh, someone on there had preached a pretty good message and and just said uh, you should give your life uh, over to Christ and, and invited me over uh, TV. And I, and I remember uh, sitting there and, and praying that uh, Jesus, you know, that I would give my life over to him. Um, it didn't, didn't really matter so much uh, at that time. Um, I, I would say I was a Christian out of convenience. Um, you know, I, I came to church when I could or when it felt okay. Um, but but I wasn't committed, uh, certainly. Um, my Between my 6th and 7th grade year, I think it was, uh, Kent, um, I started coming to youth group, uh, and Kent invited me and, and a, a kid named Corey Castleberry to meet with him over the summers. Um, and we met, I, I believe, once a week. Uh, and he, he got us to come because of McDonald's, which was uh, <clears throat> a big draw for me, uh, getting a, a free meal over the summer. Um, 
but he challenged uh, Corey Castleberry and we, me with uh, memory verse or with different memory verses, and uh, he went through and, and really uh, taught both of us what it means to be a Christian and, and a disciple, and um, and that message has always, um, you know, it's always been one of those, like John said, dominoes uh, in my life, um, but I still was not uh, committed um, fully, um, and, and you know, I can see that now. I probably wouldn't have told you that then. I probably would have said, yeah, I'm a Christian, I, you know, I'm but I wasn't committed. Anyway, uh, I started going to CDYC a whole bunch, uh, and, and like other Christians, a few times, I, I, I guess I reaffirmed my uh, commitment. Um, the Adrian Dupree guy with the sticks out of his pants, you know, I, I came forward and, and recommitted my, my life to Christ. Um, but then I joined the Navy uh, in 2002. I spent five years uh, in the Navy. Um, I took a Bible with me everywhere, um, and, and I read it uh, at different times. Um, however, I, I think maybe I only attended church like three times uh, when I was in the Navy and, and went all over the world. And, um, you know, that's kind of a, a thing I kind of wish that I wouldn't have, have done, uh, you know, straight away from God. Uh, but in 08, I was back in Fort Wayne. Uh, Chelsea, my current wife, and I, uh, we started coming back to church. Um, we were fairly regular uh, that, that first year, um, but it, it was around that time. Uh, I, I got involved with Men's Fraternity, um, which was a, a program that uh, in one sense is still kind of going on. The, the men meet every Tuesday um, at McDonald's to do a Bible study, 6 a.m., if any of you want to join us. Uh, and <clears throat> it was at that time that I realized what had really been missing from uh, from my Christian life, and that was really being committed and, and um, not allowing um, you know myself to to get in my own way. So that self uh, sufficiency, just allowing that to uh, to be driven out of my life and, and having a dependence on Christ. So that's where I'm at. David Randolph Fulry was a bad man, a very bad man. Those are to be the first words of my eulogy. My friend Don has agreed to do that. Uh, I didn't know how bad I was because I was called to be a missionary at approximately age 13. My church honored that, and uh, somewhere in my senior year, I was appointed uh, liturgist by the pastor, in the uh, United Church of Christ at that time, at least in that congregation, uh, we wore robes. Uh, he had me do everything except the sermon, but it was all ritual, all rote. I didn't know what I was doing. I was just following orders. And one Sunday I was sitting up there thinking, uh, what am I doing up here? I'm an atheist. I found out later I was more of an agnostic. But then for 20 years, over 20 years, I was gone. I was unreachable. Nobody who wanted to reach me thought I could ever be reached. The really bad thing I did, not that there was only one, was after being married for 15 years, I left my family. It wasn't that bad. I just thought I needed to be free in my definition. What I didn't realize at the time 
was I was not giving the first thought to my children, let alone the harm I was doing myself and my wife. I didn't even think about my three children. That's really bad, really bad. Discovered I didn't have that freedom very quickly that I thought I would have. Um, I remember being given permission by a counselor at Bowen Center to have the freedom to divorce my wife. So I don't recommend the Bowen Center to anyone. <laughs> I began uh, with not knowing, or with knowing that I didn't have the freedom. I began uh, almost immediately after our divorce uh, to seek God, to seek uh, various churches. I could name half a dozen denominations I attended, men's Bible studies in particular. Uh, one event that I. Talk about the domino effect. Uh, I treasure this. I wish I knew all the guys because they don't know that it finally had its effect. Uh, uh, Pentecostal types uh, who I stopped to counsel with one fellow at his office, and he said, let me take you out to so-and-so's house. And they laid hands on me and cast a devil out of me. I didn't feel anything, and I wasn't a believer at that point. But it was one of the dominoes, no doubt. I was so hungry for the truth. That was the essence of my, my state for a couple of years while I was loving the Bible. That at one point in the Nazarene church when the call was made, I was ready to get up out of the middle of a pew. They were like these. Cross the people. And if the Lord turned me toward the front, then that would be fine. And if he did not, I was going to walk out. I was afraid to do that. I was afraid he wouldn't turn me toward the front. But it was still a year or more before I really believed him because wanting to know the truth and having read my Bible and having gone to many Bible studies, I kept saying, well, how can I just believe? I don't believe, so how can I just believe? Much as these two guys have stated, it wasn't a matter of what I was able to do at all. But one evening on the couch at my folks' house, and I was almost 42. He called me the old guy, which I am. But I was old, I was old before I stepped into the kingdom. So it's, it's not true that you have to be, uh, come, come young. But that's still best, Levi. It's still best to come young. Because I was sitting on the couch with Dad at the other end. I remember that, reading stuff I'd gotten from uh, Billy Graham Association because I'd gone to see the prodigal and responded with their card. And something in the stuff that was sent was the thing that tipped the scale, but it wasn't really that stuff. It wasn't really my study. It wasn't really Billy Graham Association. It was the Holy Spirit. He enabled me to say yes, and there's been no going back. I believe, help my unbelief is still my prayer quite often about whatever's gone on in my life because I trust him and him only, the spirit in me. I can hardly imagine that he would choose me. And then he gave me Paula, good and perfect gift, James 1.17. Why would he be so good to me when I was so rotten? But it's true for every one of us. I think 
gentlemen. God's people are changed by their encounter with God. It's of him. It's for him. Who or what is leading your living? You know, it's not a question of religion. I mean, all these guys told you, you know, it's, it's, not, that, it's not that question of religion. Whatever it is, you know, what, whatever it is or whoever it is that is compromising your full commitment to God, God wants to deal with that with you. He wants to deal with that, just like he did with Jacob. God's people are changed by their encounter with God. Surrender to him.